Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Truth in Christ Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. And so as we look at this, you know, as I look at this, these first six verses, I don't really see a believer behind these six verses, meaning these first six verses are really speaking of a different group of people, people who perhaps don't know the Lord. Because when we think about riches, you know, we can, we can get kind of confused, but, the, you know, it is not wrong biblically to be wealthy. You know, some people think that being wealthy means that you've got to act a certain way, and, and yet the Bible has something very different to say about it. How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the King. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Wednesday's edition of Truth in Christ. Today, Pastor Rob begins chapter 5 in the book of James and tells us that the first six verses, James appears to be referring to those that are not believers in Jesus Christ. We know that just possessing money is not a sin. God wants us to be prosperous, but also be wise. It is placing riches over Almighty God that is unacceptable. Pastor Rob tells us of several biblical patriarchs that were very wealthy, but did not place their riches or their financial status above God. Let's listen to Pastor Rob as he examines these truths. James chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, and you have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter, and you have condemned and you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. And so as we look at this, you know, as I look at this, these first six verses, I don't really see a believer behind these six verses, meaning these first six verses are really speaking of a different group of people, people who perhaps don't know the Lord. Because when we think about riches, you know, we can, we can get kind of confused, but, the, you know, it is not wrong biblically to be wealthy, you know, some people think that being wealthy means that you've got to act a certain way, and, and yet the Bible has something very different to say about it. In fact, in the uh, Old Testament patriarchs, we know, we're just going to go through these really quickly. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were very wealthy. They were very wealthy. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, it says, God speaking to, to Abram, he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. 
And I'll bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in Genesis chapter 13, he has this to say. And this is when Abraham left Egypt with Sarah after narrowly escaping their lives, and especially hers, because she was beautiful, and they went to go uh, journey down there. And you remember, Pharaoh kind of took her in, supposing and hoping to take her into his harem. And God spoke to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was quite upset with um, Abraham. And so finally he sends him out, and it says, Now when Abraham heard, I'm sorry, um, then Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. And Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. So Abram was a very wealthy man. And in today's standards, he was extremely, extremely wealthy. In Genesis chapter 14, you remember when Lot had been taken captive by uh, the, the king of Sodom and those other five kings, and, they, and Lot was taken captive. It says that Abraham, in, in Genesis 13, in the first two verses, he says, Abram went up from Egypt. I'm sorry, I, my eyes skipped here. <laughs> now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants. How many of us have a servant in our house that they do nothing but serve us? Anybody here? It's okay if you raise your hand. We may ask you to buy lunch later, but... No, usually most of us, the majority of us, perhaps none of us, has somebody who is hired just to take care of our laundry, clean our house, stuff you know, like that. A live-in person, right? But Abraham had 318 trained servants. So this man was very wealthy, which were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan to retrieve Lot, and he did do that. And finally, in Genesis chapter 24, when Abraham's servant, who was unnamed in chapter 24 there, he sends him to fetch a bride for Isaac, and he finally shows up at his family's, where his family would live because they wanted someone out of his own family. It says in verse 34, so he said, the servant, he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And to have a camel in those days um, was quite a big deal. And um, he had several. And that was important as they would trade and do those kinds of things. But even if we look in the, in the lives of Isaac, it says in I, uh, Genesis chapter 26, it says, And Isaac sowed in the land. This is when he was in Gerar, which was the land of the Philistines. It says he sowed in the land, and he reaped the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks, possessions of herds, and a great number of servants. And so the Philistines envied him. So these patriarchs were very wealthy. We also look at Job. In the first two verses of Job, first three actually, let me read it to you. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. Notice, he was blameless and upright. He was very wealthy, as you're going to see. He wasn't greedy and covetous, as these men that James is going to be referring to. And he was one who feared God, and he shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him, and also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
And so we look at these patriarchs, and they were very wealthy. And, but it says that Job, was an, he was an upright man. He was an honest man. He was a godly man. And so for someone to be rich in our culture, we have a, there, there's all kinds of common stereotypes that we impose upon those who are wealthy. We think of them, we, we like to pigeonhole them. And a stereotype, what we're going to look at in just a minute, is really a judging You're really judging when you stereotype someone, when we stick them in a box and say, this is who you are because of your financial capability or lack thereof. If you're not rich, then this is what we label you and we stick you in a box. That's judging. And the Bible says, even in the book of James, you can't look on the outward appearance because God looks on the heart. And we always have to be careful that we look underneath the cover of the book to find the contents Because the contents of the book is what's important, not the outside cover. And the outside cover can be different for many people. But yet we can stereotype rich people. We often think of them as greedy and selfish, lustful, never satisfied, cold and impersonal, willing to step on you to get anything that they want. And the bottom line is all that matters. And there are people like that, unfortunately. There are people like that. When we look at the word stereotype in the, in the dictionary, it says a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular type of person or thing. And so literally what it is, is we are pigeonholing people with these stereotypes. Do you do that? When you see somebody who's really wealthy, you automatically put up this wall. I know that I can tend to do that because I'm expecting something. I've already stereotyped them. Before I've even said a word, before they've even said a word to me, I'm already judging them. And it's not fair and it's not right to do. And we see, like I said, in you know, the Old Testament patriarchs, they were very wealthy, but they were really good men. These men were generous. These men were godly. And so we have to be really careful. You know, I've known very wealthy people whom you'd never know that they were millionaires. There's a, a, a friend in our family who uh, this husband and wife, were uh, they literally, and I'm not kidding when I say this, they literally own half of a very large city in a state near New York. They own literally half the city. And he started his business from the ground up. He was a hardworking man, and you would never know. And, and, and he built this, this great empire, really, for his family. And we just happened to be renting from them down in southwest Florida on Pine Island in a little town called Boquilia in the northern tip of Pine Island, and we, they had a house down there. And it was a small house. It wasn't anything ostentatious. You know, it wasn't anything big. And my mom and I, we rented that home for a number of years. And they owned this home. And for, on occasion, they would, they would come down from the state that they belonged. And they would spend the winter down there. And you would never know by looking at them that they were, they were very wealthy. You'd never know it. And they were just down-to-earth people. In fact, if you saw them, and I, and I don't say this to, in any disrespect or anything, but if you, if you saw them, you might be tempted to say, if you're out in a restaurant and you saw them sitting there, you might be tempted to ask the waitress, hey, can, can you ask them? Maybe we could buy their dinner for them. <laughs> right? Because they were just down-to-earth people. He drove a truck around, you know, just a beat-up truck, and he, he, looked like, he looked like a cross between Grizzly Adams and... Um, and remember Grizzly Adams? Anybody remember Grizzly Adams? He looked like a cross between Grizzly Adams and uh, the Incredible Hulk. He was just this wonderful guy and beard and, you know, he just... 
But you'd never know it. You'd never know it. And they were the kindest, most generous people that I've known. And my family's still friends with them. And I pray for her, though, because he has passed away a number of years ago now. But she's still alive, and she's uh, coming close to the end. So if you could think of uh, uh, Marilyn as her name, if you could pray for her, for her salvation, and that God might touch her and heal her and get a hold of her uh, before it's too late. And so I've known personally those kind of people, and perhaps you have too. And, you know, Layman Strauss, he was a Baptist preacher. He had this to say. He said, no man can determine whether he is rich or poor merely by looking at his balance in the bank. He is not rich or poor according to what he has, but according to what he is. Not what you have, but who you are. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and what are you? Who are you? As, child of, as children of God, we are a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Aren't you glad that that's who you are? That's really who you are now, regardless of your economic background. I love that God cuts through right through the stratum of social, you know, political, financial, all that stuff. He just, who are you or what are you? Are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? If you're a child of God, this is who you are. You're a special person. You're a chosen generation. See, the world and the devil will say you're worth nothing, and the world will treat you as nothing. The world could care less about you. The devil could care less about you. He wants to use whatever you have and spit you out. That's what the world does. It'll chew you up, and it'll spit you out. If you're a gifted young person and you've got a great gift, give it to God. And serve him all of your life because you may, you may get money someday from the world. They'll take everything they got from you and you'll work overtime and overtime and overtime and your family, your kids are going to suffer. And when it's all said and done, you're expendable. See you later. Here's your gold watch. They don't even give out gold watches anymore. They used to. But have you, he would go on and say, have you any unused treasure It may be an unused Bible, an unused talent, an unused time, unused money, or an unused life. He says, an idle treasure is good for nothing. An idle treasure is good for nothing. And it's not what we do, or it is what we do with our wealth that God has given us. That's what matters. And not only how we have obtained it, but our attitude with it, our motivation behind it. What is your motivation for obtaining wealth? If you just obtain it because you're a hard worker and you're a good steward, praise the Lord. But some people are so bent on uh, gaining wealth, they'll do anything. You know, do you obtain wealth by some uh, underhanded and sneaky, perhaps, you know, obtaining wealth uh, at the expense of someone else's problems or addictions, preying on their circumstances? that you might gain from them. You know, I, and I hope nobody's a pawnbroker in here because I'm going to pick on them a little bit. But, you know, I think of uh, over in Canandaigua, they got that dog track. And people are over there, and they're spending their hard-earned money for that, those things. And then they run out of money. And what's the next thing you do then? You start pawning off your, your stuff. So hopefully you can put your number on the right dog and win all your cash back. You know, when you think about people like that and, and you know, just taking and using the, 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 the desperation of people. And there are many other occupations that do that too. Is that where you've gained your wealth, or is it in an honest living? You know, the, Pharisee of, the Pharisees of Jesus' time, they would do the same thing. They would pray on widows, 
hoping to gain from them financially, and that when they finally passed away, they would leave it into the Pharisees, uh, their will into the Pharisees' hands, you know. Or did you get your wealth by working hard and being diligent, being generous but wise, being frugal and living well within your means? And that's what this couple that I was talking to you about earlier, they, they, they were that kind of people. They, they didn't know the Lord, but they had, uh, there was something about them that I really admired, and it wasn't their money. I admired how they could have that much and not let it affect them, because it really didn't. They, and they never insured anything. It was kind of a funny thing. You know, they'd have this 44-foot sailboat in, our, in the canal in our backyard, and if a hurricane came and wiped it out, they would just buy another one. They wouldn't have to worry about, you know, insurance. But they were, they were good folks. They were good folks. You know, this morning I labeled the message, The Dangers of Wealth, and I thought I would just do a quick search on this phrase and see what I would find. And I found something that I, I just want to read to you because it really could, I can't do any better, honestly. And it's based on Matthew chapter 19, uh, where Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um, and he says, and he, he gives five different things uh, of the dangers of being wealthy. And the first one was, there's a fascination in the ownership of money, for it represents much of this world's power. There are few worldly things it cannot purchase. And besides, there is a satisfaction to the rich man in counting his money in the quiet contemplation the secret consciousness of the power which, he ple- which, if he pleases, he can wield through it. The second thing is money takes from man the feeling of dependence on God. And possessing it, he is apt to say to himself, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Why then should he trouble about possible future wants when his income is so far above his expenditure? And hence his state of mind is entirely opposed to the spirit in which we are taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread. The possession of wealth is therefore destructive to humility or dependence upon God. And riches can also incline a man in all of his ways to lean upon the world which provides him with too much in which he delights, to make this world his home, thus hindering him from looking up. For we cannot live by faith and sight and any more than we can serve two masters." And the possession of wealth tempts a man to be self-indulgent to a needless display of magnificence in himself and his surroundings. Through the pleasures his wealth creates, he soon gets entangled, and the daily cross of a disciple of Christ is altogether kept out of sight. The soul's eye becomes darkened, and the affairs of time seem to be only reality, those of, eternal, those of eternity a shadow, a dream about which the man who is happy need not trouble himself. But there are many who have the feeling that they are not rich and cannot therefore be concerned in the danger which the possession of riches brings. This may be true in one sense, but then riches is a word having uh, different meanings to different people. Again, many have been uh, who have not money look upon its acquisition as the aim of life and accept su- success in gaining it as the measure of happiness. And many suffer the danger of the rich because their thoughts are all centered on becoming rich. Labor being the ordinance of God, we ought to be able to find in our work the path allotted to us by his will. We should love God and not self, but not one of us left to himself is capable of efficiently discharging the responsibilities entailed by the possession of wealth. We need to be sustained by God. And isn't that true? I couldn't have said it any better, but those are the things that we we struggle with. 
and with wealth. And in these first six verses of James, James is certainly talking about someone other than the righteous. He's speaking of the wicked who are rich. If you look down in verse 7 really quickly, you can see there, after those six verses, he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So he's saying, as a result of this, therefore, be patient, brothers. So now he's talking about the redeemed, the brothers. And James, in, 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 this, in this book, he had three things to say at different times throughout the book that we've been looking at. In the first chapter, in verse 10, he said, uh, James commends the wealthy for their humility. That even if you are born again and you're wealthy, you know, the, the humble person, he commends the, the humble person. In James chapter 2, he condemns the believers for their preferential treatment toward the rich. How we tend to look at somebody when they come in, and if we know they're rich, we, we tend to put them in the front and speak to them differently. We tend to act to them, uh, act toward them differently. And finally, in this last chapter in James, he condemns those who are wealthy and oppressive. So I don't believe we're really speaking of believers here. So let's get right into it. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. And when you think of when James wrote this letter, it wasn't long after this letter was written that the fall of Jerusalem occurred in 70 A.D. And when you think of those who he might be addressing, it could be those men back in Jerusalem or in Jerusalem, that had crucified Jesus Christ. Those wealthy men, those wealthy religious leaders, who were more concerned about their wealth than they were concerned about righteousness. And that's always a thing for us today to be careful of. But you know, there is never a peace or joy when money or riches are obtained uh, by dishonesty or wrongdoing. But alternately, there's a great joy when you're providing for yourself and for your family by honest means. You can sleep at night and enjoy the blessings of God. There's nothing greater than working really hard. And you know this, man, for if you've worked a really hard day, you're mentally and physically, you're spent, and then you come home and you sit down on your couch and your wife makes you a meal and you sit down at the dinner table with your family. There's no greater joy than to know that you've put in a good day's work and then you and then you, you rest for the fruit of your labors, right? Is that true? We enjoy that, and it, it's a blessing from the Lord. The Lord exhorts us not to be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Verse 2, your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. You know, wealth is fleeting, isn't it? It just goes through some people's hands like it was never there. It's fleeting. And why do we put our trust in it then? Yet we do it. Because we crave the ease and the comfort that money can bring. We do. In World War I, which lasted from 1914 to 1918, a five-year period, there was a period right after World War I that they called the Roaring Twenties. And if you um, remember in history... It was a time of great affluence. Everybody in America was doing really well, and it was just a boom, and, and, and housing was going up. Everything was, just, everything was becoming really easy until the Wall Street stock market crashed on 1929. It started on October 24th. It was a Thursday. They called it Black Thursday, and it lasted, uh, this crash, for uh, about five days. And it ended on October 29th, which, which they called Black Tuesday. And on that Tuesday, 
alone, $14 billion was lost. And over that five-day period, a total of $30 billion went down the tubes. And as a result of that, because people had their hopes and their aspirations and money, many people, as a result of that, were jumping out of buildings in New York City. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of James. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office for ordering details. And that number again is 585-586-3140. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things, such as information concerning our beliefs, ministry and contact information, our location and service times, and much more. You can even download the radio or sanctuary messages in MP3 format, free of charge, from the resources link. You can also listen to these messages on your mobile device by going to Calvary Chapel of Rochester on Google Play or Apple Podcast. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until this same time tomorrow, this has been Truth in Christ.